Hey everyone, Sloan here with another great discussion about sustainable finance for you. In this episode, Ashby and I are joined by Paul Smith, who brings an unusually global perspective to this as the founder of Sustained Finance and the former CEO of CFA Institute. If, you pay, if you've been paying attention, you know that also makes him my former colleague. We started off the conversation by talking about his favorite experiences leading CFA Institute, an organization that's global beyond simple comprehension. And spoiler alert, his answer involves being greeted by a country's former finance minister on a white horse. I'll leave you to, to, discover, the, to discover that in the podcast. We also talked about what he's up to now, namely exploring the sustainable finance space. We touched on how prepared the industry is to navigate a climate transition, how to tell whether and to what extent firms have authentic commitments to sustainability, and whether ESG investing is just a new, uh, a new version of colonialism. We closed the conversation by asking him how he feels about the outlook for Hong Kong as a financial center. He's lived there for decades and doesn't seem likely to leave anytime soon. Then, as always, we talked about hard things we're dealing with and various things we're building and took questions from listeners. We touched on Ashby's new paper, bad opinions about what constitutes a sandwich, and discussions about how to pay for and incentivize a climate transition. That's all from me for now. Take it away, Sharkbait. Ahoy, free money podcast listeners! I'm Sharkbait Buckley, the Disclosure Pirate, and I'm here to set ye straight about what's going on with this here show. Sloan Ortel works for Invest Vegan LLC, a New York registered investment advisor. Ashby Monk works for Stanford University, Adapar, Future Proof, Long Game, and various startups. All opinions expressed by either Sloan or Ashby are entirely their own, and do nay reflect the opinions of their crew or any company. Clients who invest vegan may maintain positions in securities and strategies discussed in this podcast. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Invest Vegan and its representatives are properly licensed or exempted, and a client agreement has been executed. Arr. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. It's where we give you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you crave. And, uh, you know, maybe that's unhealthy and, you know, whatever. We're just dealing with it. We are. Speaking of unhealthy, my kids are going to get vaccinated next week, Slump. Ooh. It's happening. Wow. It's happening. Wow. Yeah. Well, the, the 5G was a little weak in my house. Yep. You know? Yep. Yeah. And, so we well, want to multi-hop relay that, you know, well, through the kids. Well, and then there's the discount on the Microsoft products that you get, uh, True. you know, which like <laughs> actually, do you know what I think is the greatest incentive for uh, kid uptake of vaccine to mm. go see Dune in IMAX? Oh, yeah. We're doing that this weekend. It's really exciting. Uh, I got to go do that. I saw it on the little, you know, I didn't watch it on my phone, uh, but I did watch it on the TV screen. And you can just sense that if you saw this in the big theater. It would yep. blow your freaking mind. Yep. I'm so glad that there's finally a Dune movie that, like, I mean, there, obviously, like, with any sci-fi movie that's, like, with a beloved book like this, you know, there's going to be critique and whatever. But, like, you know, the fact that there's not, like, widespread, like, you know, vitriol directed at this film tells me it's perfect. I uh, know. <laughs> All the true believers. Yeah. Including our former guest, Jason Voss. Yeah. Um, who's seen Dune. <laughs> 
50 to 100 times the ridge. <laughs> uh, he said that it's fantastic. My critique of it is that it's only half a movie. Yep. That is my critique. Yep. And uh, I'm going to stand by that. Mm -hmm. um, it's factually correct. It's yep. half a movie. But they're getting, we're getting the other half. Uh, <laughs> but have they filmed it already? No. Like, I don't understand. They have to go back and do another movie. Yep. Yep. They just, to, just so we. It's to, mi to mitigate financing risk. You know, I mean, like the, it, I, I think that the director wanted to film it all at once, but the studio was like, that is insane. Um, well, that is the perfect transition to my first bit of news. <laughs> because, <laughs> sorry to cut you off here. But the Alberta Investment Management Corporation is investing $500 million. Maybe they're pooling their money with others. I'm not exactly sure of the details in new movie studios huh. to fill the content void because so much uh, of the content is being created in these like non-traditional studios, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we're seeing... Alberta Investment Management Corporation and in quotes, a sovereign wealth fund. The, clearly oh. that sovereign wealth fund did not approve of the, the press release. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, my, it's like a story within a story there. Yeah, folks. yeah, exactly. Like, oh, we, we want to be investing in film, but we don't want anyone to know we're investing in film. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the manager that's doing this is like, but we got to like, you know, tip our hat to the fact that we have Adia, um, which is like almost certainly who it is, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough times. slot when you're like, you know, getting a, I, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic with that, you know, like you're getting a fund up, up and running, you know, it's, it's tough to demonstrate legitimacy. You got, yeah, credit, 500 million isn't enough for credibility. You got to yeah. throw in the like generic sovereign wealth fund line. It's 500 but my million, point is, big check. That is a big check. And hopefully some of that money gets us doing faster. That's <laughs> that was the connection to the top. <laughs> I mean, I, like I, that's really encouraging. I think like the you know I was I was actually musing like earlier that like the 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 whole like you know proliferation of film distributors really creates like a much more uh, you know kind of interesting ecosystem for those people. Because I, I mean I have like a, a cousin who's just like trying to get a TV series off the off the ground. And yeah, I mean, it really seems like a good time to be doing stuff like that. There's a lot of entrepreneurial capital out there. There's a lot of, mm. you know, uh, a lot of places that you can wind up getting your thing distributed, right? Like, you know, all the old networks are still there. Plus, we have all the new ones. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know how it works for overall investment returns, but certainly from a creative standpoint, um, you know, really, really encouraging. I agree. I could even envision kind of a goofball comedy where two intrepid uh, podcasters, <laughs> uh, you know, try to free the world's capital. Yep, and freaking succeed. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, it would be like a, like a like a nice procedural, you know, or <laughs> it'll be like it'll be like Scrubs. Like there'll be like the comedy part, and then it's like, and we save the planet. And we save the. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and like Sorry, a little, next... little, little magical realism in there too. I think. Yeah, a little goofiness, but at the same time, Earth saved. Um, all right, next story: the Stichting Pension Funds, Ooh, also good, known as ABP, ABP, <laughs> yeah, also known as APG, which oh. is the investment arm of ABP. Mm -hmm. uh, they are located in the town of Heerlen, Netherlands. Um, and they have announced that they are going to effective immediately divest completely from the fossil fuels. That's great. Um, 
pretty wild. They got 523 billion euros of pension fund dollars inside of them. But in terms of a divestment, um, that's about 15 billion that they got to like pull out of different assets in the yep. next little while and redeploy. And part of the news was like all of their like asset managers being forced to comply, like Fidelity saying, oh, sh shoot, I guess we're going to have to figure out how to build an index um, without all this fossil fuels in it for for APG. So it's a that's a the reason we're continuing to call out some of these divestments, or at least I wanted to call this one out. This is like a new level. Like we thought yeah. Harvard was interesting. Like, you know, what are they 50 billion? Yeah. You know, this is like. Six hundred and fifty billion dollars. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It's I mean, fifteen billion dollars is would be on its own, like probably the the fifth or sixth largest university endowment. Um, you know, and like it, it's so interesting to see people moving away from this, like because you know you, there are people who are making the case that like this divestment is going to have blood on its hands because it kind of like leads people to, I mean, it basically, you know, the argument is it shifts production to Iran and to Russia, um, you know, and to, to play in, you know, but like, I think that's such a weak argument. Uh, yeah, it's a know, bad guy's argument. Yeah, it's a bad guy. Well, but what it, about the bad guys? Well, it, it, but it's also, it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, so, you know, if you believe that your secondary market investment has immediate real world effects, uh, you know, yeah. sure, sure. Um, you know, but like it, if that's $15 billion that can go into solar and like the, you know, we're in a, with renewables, we're in a place where our deployment is like three Xing and four Xing. Um, yeah. You know, and like, I'm surprised some of that 15 billion doesn't come to finance our podcast. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, like, I think you think about like impact, you yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Impact at scale. Impact at scale. Like we get the message out. And other, you know, we lay it out and people play it out. That's what that's I always true. say. That's true. So <laughs> speaking of laying it out. Yep. Sequoia Capital. Oh, yeah. I knew you were going to bring this up. <laughs> <laughs> well, my favorite is when big, rich asset managers cloak themselves in alignment to get even richer. Yep. Um, and so Sequoia Capital, for those that don't know, they're done raising funds which is mm -hmm. a pretty freaking big step change in this world of institutional investment that we inhabit because everybody was always begging for access to Sequoia funds. It's like the, probably one of the world's best asset managers, like just in terms yeah. of performance, like world yeah. best. Yeah. They're just delivering performance. That's like probably has three digits before the decimal point. Yeah. Um, so what are they doing? They're setting up something called Sequoia Fund, which is a permanent capital structure, which those of you who know me know that I am very intrigued by those permanent capital structures. I like aligning fund vehicles with the underlying asset. It's totally what Sequoia is doing here. They want to find a way to go between private and public markets. They want to hold their public companies, of which they have many. Yep. In your Sequoia, you have many public companies. Um so that's the neato part, aligning the structure with the founders. LPs seem to be on board. Yep. But it, part of me is like, hmm, it's an internal fund of funds. So you now just allocate capital into the Sequoia Fund. And the Sequoia Fund becomes the single LP in all the other funds. I'm sure yep. that LP is going to negotiate very hard Very, yeah. I mean, like, if you would never... <laughs> <laughs> and so you get to pay fees at the top level and then you get to pay fees that you don't even negotiate at the bottom level. So there's a little piece of me that's like, this is just a manager that's like three and 30 wasn't enough. 
And so now we're going to take 1% right off the top every year. Yep. And that, you know, and then we're going to still charge you the three and 30 and, but we're just not going to let you negotiate anything down below. So who knows? We'll see. I do like innovation in, in the markets. It's wild to see some fund with this level of dominance do something this aggressive and, and different. So yeah. good for them. Um, but I just suspect it has more to do with capturing a bigger share of the pie. Yep. Well, it's, it's from a marketing standpoint, it's really interesting because it allows like, you know, the them they can raise now. They're, they're so much less constrained in terms of how much money they can manage because they have the public capital pot. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so they, they can like it, you know, they still have this Sequoia name. They still have all that, you know, um, but they can invest. They can just be like another public tech manager. Uh, it's true. Like that's the that's the piece that I think will be interesting to figure out. Are they just going to hold the things that they've bought privately or when like will I be able to now invest in Sequoia and that will just go into the public stocks that Sequoia owns? I, it'll be yeah. very fascinating. Yeah, it's well. I mean, you know, they're finally catching up with uh, you know the geniuses at Invest Vegan and becoming a registered investment advisor. Um, yes, that's part. true. <laughs> no, I think they saw the. I think they saw that Invest Vegan announcement. Yeah, so, they saw the writing on the yeah. wall. Um, mm, you, you know, mm. <laughs> but like, but yeah, you know, I, I think that there are like, uh, you, you know, it's really cool to see them a lot do that alignment. But you know, it's it, it, it's it's just a very confusing kind of development for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If it wasn't like just another layer of 1% of fees every single year on a huge pool yep. of capital yep. that they already own. So they already did the work, by the way. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to make enemies. Good well, for them. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, you got sort of, you know, somebody like all of a sudden camping out outside your house. Uh, the like, I, you know, I think it's interesting, though, because like T. Rowe Price is a big, you know, kind of tech manager that's been increasingly, you know, in its mutual funds holding late stage private, um, yeah. you know, investments. So like, in, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, it's a it's like the harmonization of all of those approaches, you know, the team. And a lot of these hedge funds are doing it. Like yeah. you look at what Tiger's doing. I mean, like there are, there's this blend between public and private markets. That's definitely been taking place for a while, but a lot of it has been the hedge funds dipping into the venture and like eating their lunch. Maybe this is, you know, had, you know, the venture people trying to eat their dinner. I don't know. Yeah. Too well, many it, analogies. Well, it, but, you know, also like, you know, I, I've noticed a lot of companies are coming. I mean, like, you know, in the SPAC world now, we have, you know, companies coming, companies coming, companies coming public. Like, How is our right? SPAC coming, by the oh, way? Oh, there are uh, our SPAC. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it's you know, we're not really up and caught up with the Trumps of the world. Uh, well, Sloan, God dang. I, yeah. I was going to say, if Trump could do a SPAC, like, what the flip? We've got as much of a media brand <laughs> as whatever it is. Truth. What is? What was the? Yeah. Truth, truth social. Truth social. Yeah. Couldn't even remember it. But yep. everybody knows free money. Well, it's and he's a you know he's he basically did it with a PowerPoint. I mean, I guess basically what needs to happen is we need to make a PowerPoint. Uh, Damn, that's a lot. That's yeah, a lot of work. It's a heavy lift. Building you know? stuff is hard. We're gonna come to that later. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We, well, we gotta get it. You know, we gotta get our guest in here first. Uh, oh shit. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I don't think we have him yet. Um, oh. You know the. <laughs> Perfect. He's coming to us from far overseas. You know, so um, 
you know, hopefully- well, I can give you a bit. I can give you a bit another a bonus news item. Oh, great! Yeah. So one of the longtime uh, guests of the show, uh, our good friend from the firm Ethic dot com, Ethic dot com is Jay Lipman, and Jay Lipman is the president of Ethic, and they've recently announced. Um, and this is this is a story, Sloan, as like the perils of us getting too famous. Um, and it, it concerns me because these podcasts are fire, right? Yeah, so yeah, just yeah. wanted to get this is like a warning shot for us. Um, Jay and and Doug and Johnny, the three founders, have brought on Megan and Harry, the Royals, as impact advisors to Ethic. And guess what happens when you bring Royals into your company? The Daily Mail camps outside your mom's house. <laughs> your mom's and, house? Yes. Yes. And so if you happen to go and look at the Daily Mail this morning, you will see, or maybe it was a day or two ago, exclusive revealed, fun-loving hippie banker, 33, who founded Harry and Meghan ethical investment firm is a rugby-mad vegan ex-public schoolboy from Surrey who has great banter with Prince and has hung out at his 10 million mansion. This is in the Daily Mail with like 22 pictures of him oh from my like god. the random internet. Oh my god. <laughs> so I There's can only imagine of him holding a dog with his mother. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and like just so you guys know like Jay's a totally normal human being, right? <laughs> so like this is a rag just going out and try like anything royal related. Like if you get involved with the royals all this article you, is so long it's like it feels like it's ten thousand words yeah. yeah it's like i mean it's it's really like un. i mean and it gets into like de blasio <laughs> yeah i missed that <laughs> I, I just like skimmed it and then like that you got down at the bottom there was like there's like a critique from like a cab driver uh <laughs> you know of de blasio who's like Oh yeah, Bill de Blasio shouldn't be hobnobbing with the Royals. He should be like you know focused on helping people. Uh, yeah, that's a there's a it's totally not a non sequitur like co- co- like connecting cabbies through ethic into the Royals and Bill de Blasio. I'm sure they're all related. Yep, yep. I mean, I yeah, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize Jay was vegan too. That 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 rules. Um, yeah, I did not realize that either. Ooh, Paul says he's in the app. Oh no, oh. but I don't see him. Uh, oh no, um, how is that possible? Oh, I see him. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, Paul, wow. Hey. So I didn't see you there. Sorry about that, Paul. We, uh, our technologized podcast is maybe sometimes too technologized <laughs> for even us. <laughs> I'm just trying on a... I'm just trying on another device as well because this is I've got you on my phone here. I'm just trying to see whether I can get you up on my iPad, which might be a better uh, a better link. Can you see? Uh, oh. The quality sounds great. Yeah, you sound great for and you know I mean I guess we we were uh, troubleshooting right. uh, the technology and we forgot to introduce you. This is of course Paul Smith, my former boss's boss's boss at CFA Institute. <laughs> <laughs> um, now who's building of- sustainable finance yeah well, i'm um, i'm yeah no it's all it's all um um good fun i mean you know the um sustainable finance issue that we we kicked off about kubra koldemeyer and myself kicked off about i 
guess now just over a year ago. And obviously, um, since we started, we, we look very clever because uh, just about the world and his wife has jumped on uh, on, on that particular uh, yeah. uh, theme. And obviously, with COP26 coming up as well in the next couple of days, um, you know, we look uh, we look pretty smart. But it's something that, you know, we've been we've been passionate about for a while. And we thought we would um, try and add our voice to what is uh, an increasing multitude. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we were just uh, chatting before you came on about how even like, you know, Harry and, uh, you know, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have gotten in on the sustainable investment game. <laughs> don't uh, get me started on that. Slow. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think this is Arthur Fonzarelli jumping the shark. This is just the beginning. I know. I wish I was as cool as, our, as the Fonz, but anyway, that's, uh, I'm certainly, I'm certainly uh, slightly younger than the Fonz, I think, now. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, got to hold on to it. I mean, I, I, I think maybe, maybe as like a jumping off point for this, you know, like I'd say like, you know, you and I, like we worked at this organization that like a lot of people know the name of. Um, you know, but like I would, I would, you know, venture to say that few people understand. Um, you know, and just because like by sheer nature of it being so, 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 so global. Um, and I wonder if like there's a story or a, you know, an experience that, that you had, cause you know, you've been like, you know, traveling to the CFA society in Nigeria, in Bangladesh and, you know, in, in Peru, in Chile, um, you know, like what, what stands out after, you know, now you've got some distance, you've worked out the trauma of having to actually run the thing, uh, <laughs> Um, what stands out now? Well, it's it's, it's uh, a great question, and, and thank you for asking it because you know the the most fun that I had at CFA was really um, meeting societies and and the great pleasure of going to visit people in their uh, in their home locations. Really, because you know if you enjoy travel, one of the problems with travel is that you never really feel that you get under the skin of a place because you're always an outsider, and 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 the great pleasure of going to our local societies around the world. And I visited, um, you know, 150 of them in over 100 countries. Um, the great pleasure of doing that was that you were going to see local people who were pleased to see you and would uh, show you things that as a tourist you you might not got to have seen. And so so that was the pleasure. But you mentioned Nigeria. That was top of my list Um my, my, you perhaps know that, but the, the most fun I had in Nigeria, it sounds a bit wacky, was we, we were taken up to the north of Nigeria to a city in the north called Kano, uh, K-N-O, which is um, not quite in, in the, the badlands of Nigeria where Boko Haram are, are causing such trouble, but, um, but close by. And so, um, you know, we had a, uh, um, uh, a Land Rover to take us into town with machine guns mounted, mounted fore and aft, and security personnel <laughs> and all of that sort of stuff. And I've never had that before in my life. You know, I've never, no one's ever cared whether I lived or died or before. So, <laughs> but but I think the local society didn't want didn't want the head of the CFA to uh, to sort of peg it on their watch. Basically, <laughs> uh, it was a sort of a full court oh. press as far as that was concerned. And we were going to see the wow. Emir of Kano. Uh, you know the the the, uh, the most important dignitary in the region, who happens to have been the finance minister of Nigeria in one of his previous lives, and he'd been very supportive of the local society. 
And um, we were going there really um, as the president of the CFA to thank him for all of, all of that he'd done for us. And, and um, as, as is normal, uh, the emir arrived at his diwan, his, uh, his um, uh, receiving palace, uh, on a white horse, um, preceded <laughs> and succeeded by uh, his retainers blowing trumpets and udulating and very, very formal, very colourful, exciting awesome. uh, procession as he came to his, uh, his, his audience hall. And obviously, you know, I'm there dressed in a suit and tie in probably what was 110 degree heat in, uh, <laughs> in the Sahel sort of thing. And uh, uh, it was all great fun. And, and you know, he's, tre he's a tremendous man, um, uh, uh, the Emir. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had to, although he speaks perfect English, the, the protocol is that uh, he's not allowed or I'm not allowed to talk to him directly, rather more precisely. We have to go through mm. an interpreter. And um, that was amusing because the Emir speaks better English than his interpreter did, and I could, <laughs> I, I could see, I could see that he was getting somewhat frustrated with the laborious translation of of what were some fairly basic pleasantries. But um, so, so I guess you know, I guess that's a, you know, what for a me cool that story. was a highlight. It was uh, it was really extraordinary to see uh, the Emir in his hometown. Uh, a great pleasure and a great honor as well um, to do that. And it was a, it was a real thrill. So that was, you know, that was, that was pick of my particular pops, but Africa again, as, as I mean, I love Latin America and, and had great fun in Peru and Chile and Uruguay and other countries, but Africa really stole my heart in terms of the countries that I visited where uh, a, the people are just wonderful. I mean, they're so committed. It always reminds me, you know, you know, Sloan, I, I, Ashby, I, I live in Hong Kong, have done for the last 20, mm. 25 years. And Africa reminds me of Asia uh, when I first went out there in the mid-90s in mm. that the, the commitment to education, the commitment to their children, the commitment to, um, you know, trying to build a better life year over year for themselves is overwhelming and incredibly um, emotional to be part of that journey and to feel that you're contributing in some way to that. And the country that I think, you know, for me encapsulated that more than other was Zimbabwe, um, hmm. which obviously uh, has had some terrible troubles. And, and I, I can tell you, I've never, ever laughed so much or heard so much laughter as I did when I visited Harare with the local society. Mm. They're wonderful people, and it just shows that the human spirit, the more the more BS you have to shovel in life, the more that you laugh, the more that you mm. celebrate one another, the more that community is important to you. Um, just incredible people that left me feeling, you know, very, um, very proud to be leading an organization that in some small way, and obviously one doesn't, you know, at the end of the day, we're financial education. We're not, you know, we're not rocket scientists. We're not creating new human vaccines or doing anything, anything like that to fight off epidemics, but in our own very little small way, uh, making a difference to people's lives. And, and um, you know, those would be the two experiences that I think I, I would pick out from. Mm. But I, I would also, because those are awesome. I'm talking to, people in in the us of a 
<laughs> I to say that I managed, I was so lucky, I visited 46 states of the Union, far more than Americans have ever visited. <laughs> yep, yep, you got me beat by a ways. I think, I think you got me beat too. And I have to go and look. I tell you, each one of them was a unique, pleasurable experience um, because, as I said earlier, you're meeting fellow travelers, people who are very committed to the cause of, of trying whether it's promote financial literacy or improve the quality of, of uh, financial services in their communities. And not only that, but wherever you go in the U.S., there's something extraordinary to see, not just nice people to meet, but something extraordinary to see. Um, you know, my favorite pick from there would be the Gilcrease Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I can honestly say I've never been anywhere in the world to a museum that was as well set up uh, huh. and as enjoyable to visit as that. And mm. so you, you say to people, I've just been in Oklahoma and their eyes roll into the back of their heads. But I can tell you, you're mm. the one missing out. I think we need to get a, a book series together, you know, Paul Smith on the road or, or like maybe it's a Netflix special. It's like all the greatest hits. It would um, be a, it, it would be a very, very short print run. I think actually. <laughs> I'm sitting here. I remember once I drank alcoholic milk in Mongolia and I thought that was pretty wild, but yeah. uh, <laughs> we had, when I, when I visited Mongolia, we had two charter holders there. And uh, so it wasn't perhaps one of my more um, cost-effective trips. It was, it was. It was certainly. It was certainly one of the most lively. They. They are yeah. Mongolians are wonderful people, but they. 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 They have a, a unique way of celebrating. Yeah. <laughs> True. But well, I would say. I would say, and I have to declare uh, because I own part of. I'm a very small investor in the. Um, main brewing company in Mongolia. So before I say this, um, please take that disclaimer. Um, Mongolian vodka, Mongolian vodka is the best in the world. No, <laughs> que no question about that whatsoever. Well, this podcast brought to you by Mongolian vodka. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, like we have, this a is the related, yeah. Related parties podcast. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. We have a very, uh, a very strong tradition of inviting people who have, uh, financial interests in, in stuff to discuss their themes. <laughs> Um, and needless, needless to say, it's called Genghis Khan vodka as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we'll talk about sponsorship uh, deals later. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, the, you know, I mean, like, I, you know, as you're doing those visits, you know, you're going to Mongolia, you're going to 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 Nigeria, but you're also to going to Invesco and to New Burger Berman and to you know, you pick a big firm. Um, you know, I, I would I would guess that you've kind of had some discussions with the leadership there over the last you know, a little bit and, and probably that, you know, a lot of those discussions talked about, you know, how do we hire good employees, which is, of course, central to the CFA Institute, yeah. you know, deal, but also how do we really start to think about sustainability um, and integrate it into, you know, the world CFA Institute, obviously, you know, I, I think we had an ESG guy, you know, starting in like, you know, 2011 or, or even earlier than that. Um, I don't know when Matt started working there, but it was a long time ago. Anyway, um, how would you kind of characterize those, you know, big muckety mucks and how prepared their firms are for kind of the climate transition, the ESG transition and like how committed to sustainability they are? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I think I think regionally uh, it differs. Um, Europe, I think, is uh, the big uh, uh, the big dogs are further forward in Europe because of 
social pressure, obviously, but also regulatory uh, pressure, legislative pressure. Um, uh, they have to be further ahead than their U.S. counterparts, who who are in the game definitely and are catching up. Um, Asia, uh, it's pockets basically there. Some some countries, Singapore, Hong Kong, are further ahead. Japan, perhaps, arguably, are further ahead than others. But uh, so you know, there is a, a regional take to all of this. But I, I I think you know one of the few advantages of being old is that you have uh, a little bit of perspective on some of these things and. And I would say when we, you know, when I first started really thinking about ESG, let's say ten to twelve years ago, um, you know, the industry was maybe two out of ten in terms of its preparedness and its understanding of the subject. And now I'd, I'd say, you know, it's a comfortable five out of ten, if not six out of ten, um, on a on a global basis. Now, you know, that's lots of room to improve, but there's. Um, an understanding at every level of the asset management industry, top to bottom, that uh, ESG uh, is a theme that they need to uh, take cognizance of. Now, granted, some of the companies that we're talking about uh, perhaps pay lip service to that rather more than have it in their DNA. Um, but I think it's it changes it changes almost week by week, really, in that um, uh, the conversation now is so widespread. Uh, it's such a rich one. Um, you know, I, I you think about you think about uh, Dave Chappelle at Netflix. You think about climate change. You you know, um, w whatever your particular twist, whether it's the E, the S, or the G, there are really uh, in-depth conversations happening that affect companies that you may or may not be investing in, let alone your own company as an investor. Mm. So if you, are, if you are turning a blind eye to that conversation, then really you are you're you're running into difficulty and and then i think you know again rolling that reel a little bit forward you've got to think about your clients mm. your, your the people who are going to subscribe to your mutual funds or give you managed accounts or whatever else it happens to be um and they're increasingly of a generation that cares passionately about a lot of these subjects mm. um and uh you know that's important and even old dudes like me i have to share with you that uh, my first grandchild, my first grandchild was born three or four oh my, days ago. Congratulations, Paul. And, uh, thank you. And mother and mother and baby uh, got out of hospital Amazing. yesterday. So I was able to hold, uh, and obviously because of COVID restrictions, we weren't allowed to visit. And so I was able to hold the next generation in my arms this morning. Aww. And um, so even, even, even people as old as I um, are focusing for various reasons on the future and uh i think uh yes you know greenwashing is still an issue at every level yeah uh yes a lot of businesses are not really walking the talk yet they haven't really retooled um there's not the skill sets that there should be in 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 this conversation but it's changing it's changing all the time it's changing for the better um our old employer for instance sloan has now got uh, an esg yep. certificate hmm. that's going very well uh, that people are, uh, are using to qualify their staff, um, but you know it's a it's it's a journey, it's a process. But I think we need to be um, positive about that process and to say that the industry has come a huge a huge long way. 
uh, further to travel, but it's on the right road. Mm. Um, and I think the change that I've witnessed over the last 10 years is that the ESG conversation used to be about risk management. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you, how do you protect yourselves from the downside of climate change or something like that? And today it's much more about investment opportunity. Yep. And I think that's, I think that's a tremendous leap forward in and of itself. It's that people are thinking about ESG from the perspective of how does it help us make money rather than how does it help, help prevent us losing money. And I think that's a that's a watershed change that's really only come in in the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah, especially in private markets, you see tons of um, investments in, you know, climate related technologies, climate related analytics. Like this is such a booming area. There's even entire venture firms yeah. that are kind of being stood up around these thematics. Um, you know, that, yeah. those are kind of easy to spot as being ESG managers like oh we're, we're trying to solve climate change in a venture fund like you can look at that <laughs> and say yeah i'm probably pretty impactful um but are there like if i'm an allocator and a lot of my work paul is like how do we empower like the world of allocators with better decision making yep. tools um coming out of this yep. it would be great to hear like what you think of as the giveaways when a manager is either um, authentically committed to sustainability or not authentically committed? Like, have you kind of come up with any, you know, red flags or, or green flags? Yeah, I, I think there are a few indicators, uh, Ashby. The first thing is that any, uh, any good company that's interested in this area, I think, has to have uh, a purpose statement. Uh, allied to their mission and vision. It's what's the purpose of this? Now, we've all read some terrible <laughs> examples of purpose statements, which are, which, are, um, which are really just guff. So the first, the first thing you want to focus on are, are you know, does the company have a purpose statement? And does that purpose statement have real teeth? Are there deliverables attached to it? Are there K KPIs? Are there data points attached to that purpose statement or is it just hot air is it just waffle basically are, are, are they just doing it for cosmetic reasons and then i think the second thing that you can do underpinning that purpose statement is to see whether the organization is aligned behind that at the board level start with the board level you know what does that board look like does it have skills in the esg world that correspond to the purpose that that company is espousing, and I think that you know there are some simple there are some simple indicators there as well. When you look at the S of the ES and G, you know what's the gender mix, what's the uh, uh, ethnicity mix on that board? Uh, is you use the word Ashby of authenticity? You know, are they really are, are they are their actions showing that they're living up? to the commitments that they say they they're making so i think i think there are some very simple tests at that level and then as you come down into the more granular area uh when you're looking to allocate towards asset management companies i think you know you've got lots of data points within the fund fact sheets the prospectuses uh, all of those things where you can cross check and not least their proxy voting record, which I think is the uh, is is one of the biggest issues. Um, and there you can almost make a direct correlation on the proxy voting record between how many people are in their proxy voting team. 
you know, if, if, if they've only got three people covering proxy voting worldwide and they say that as part of their, you know, their vision of their company is that they want to take activist roles in making sure that corporations that they invest in live up to their ESD credentials, you can call them out on that one to start with because if you've only got, if you've only got three people doing that uh, over a, a list of maybe uh, two or three hundred companies that you've invested in, um, you know, that's, that's really not going to work. So I think, uh, now, you know, I, I, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be necessarily too aggressive about this because it is a, it is a journey and companies are having to move from where they were to where they want to be. So I think that's the final point that I would say is that, you know, are they adding resource every year? Are they getting better? At, at trying to put some some flesh on the bone of their of their ESG commitments, and and I think that's you know we're at early days, so it's hard perhaps to get that data series so that you can look at it year over year. But I think that's what you're looking for really is not perfection, uh, is movement. And and something I should have said earlier on is is that I think uh, you know I think too often the asset management industry hides behind yeah. perfection. Uh, and says, you know, we can't, we can't possibly invest in ESG because the data's poor on the underlying companies or whatever else. Rather than say, well, you know, um, yes, the data's poor. We don't know with absolute certainty, but doing X, Y, Z is going to move the needle in the right direction. And I think that's that's what you're looking for. Really, you're looking for intentionality and evidence that those intentions are being put into place and i think there's there's plenty of ways uh, of looking at that i i, I also just sort of <laughs> sorry you shut me up in a second i also think i also think i also think the other thing that's very curious in our industry is that companies company or asset managers will say well i can't invest in xyz because the case isn't proven for it and you feel like shaking them by the throat and saying, well, once the case is proven, you do realize there's no point then investing in that company, don't you? And it's like it, it's it's like we've forgotten as an industry that our job is to go into the darkness rather than into the light. And that, I think, is a, is a big mistake that our industry is making. We're always looking for perfection. We're always mm. looking for data where the purpose of a good asset manager is to is to root around in the undergrowth where you know, the light of day has not been shone to seek out the next best thing and by definition that is that's I want that on a t-shirt with it. I, yeah. I how literally put our job is to go into the darkness not into the light on a t-shirt yep. because yeah. It's, yeah we haven't updated the free money merch store in a while but uh this is this this is like <laughs> coming right after the esg industrial complex we'll have uh, this one uh, yeah man. i it's i mean it's a fascinating and you know you're so right like because the I, you know i think that when people talk about investing in early stage crypto funds for instance they're never going well the you know the data on how these are yeah. useful is never you know, is not yet established. They're like, oh, wow, that, you know, line goes up, we can make a lot of money. Um, you know, I think that people are a little bit conflicted about something that has the potential to actually do good in the world. Um, but, you know, yeah. there's also like, I, you know, our, uh, our homies at CFA uh, UK, really CFA Scotland, um, had a, a, a thing that I saw, you know, some, some stuff from on LinkedIn um, a couple of, of weeks ago about, how, you know, this, this sort of idea that maybe ESG is a form of modern colonialism, 
like, you know, made friendly and acceptable, right? Like some, you know, hippie liberal, say in Brooklyn, perhaps thinks it's important to have, uh, you know, certain policies and procedures in place and, you know, basically, you know, lines up the powers of capitalism to force companies, no matter where they are and no matter what the management thinks, uh, you know, to kind of align with that vision. And, you know, I, one of the things I think that's really interesting about sustained finance is that you've actually kind of struck partnerships with a number of like Malaysian and Turkish governance authorities. Um, you know, so I, I'm curious how you how you think about that critique of, you know, ESG as, as you know, kind of a neo-colonialism um, that's been, you know, packaged more friendly like. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question, and and it's it's something that I think we all need to wrestle with. This idea that, uh, which has some substance to it, obviously a lot of substance to it, that that ESG is a uh, a contract um, that the developed world is foisting upon the developing world, that we are making the developing world pay for this for our sins, effectively through carbon taxes or through phasing out fossil fuels or uh, pollution or whatever else it happens to be. And, and I think there is uh, an enormous amount of, of um, uh, validity to that comment. I don't think it's the intention necessarily to be clear, but uh, is, it is the end effect that the third world, the developing world will suffer uh, disproportionately uh, in this quest. And, and you know, COP26 has that firmly on its agenda. Um, you know, how do we financially incentivize the developing world uh, to work with the developed world in, in coping with some of these climate change issues? And you've got countries, obviously, like uh, a lot in Latin America, Colombia, for instance, as, a, as an oil producer, uh, South Africa, India, China as coal producing, coal burning countries. Um, how do we help them uh, over time upgrade um, their uh, their fossil fuel uh, production engines into something that's going to be more um, uh, environmentally friendly? I, I I'm a little bit. Um, pessimistic i suppose on that particular issue and i think i would point to Kovax and the challenges that we've had over something as as really as clear as the uh, as as trying to spread the the, the covid vaccines mm. into the developing world where we failed so far to do it um and i suspect ultimately the pledges that are made in glasgow in in the next week or so as the pledges that we made in Paris uh, back in uh, 2016, um, 15, were, uh, will, will prove to be um, forgotten pretty quickly. So I think, I think it is the challenge, it is the biggest challenge, is how do we help uh, the developing world move forward? I, I would say that, um, and, and you're kind enough to point out that we do work in, in, in uh, Turkey, um, in other uh, developing countries, that there's a huge appetite in those countries to move the ball down the road as far as as, as this subject is concerned uh, for their own citizens' health, apart from anything else. It's not a 
uh, it's not uh, uh, just in terms of contributing to the to, to the global issues. Um, and we need to get alongside them. And um, if we fail to do that, then uh, I think our, our, our challenges will only be deepened and, and exacerbated. But I'm not, a, I, I'm not foolish enough to believe that the uh, uh, developed world is going to um, uh, come alongside mm. the developing world in any major way. I think it, will be, it will be incremental, it will be little by little, uh, and uh, alas, I suspect the developing world will suffer disproportionately um, uh, as we try and transition uh, out of our, um, uh, our, our carbonized world. Just the last question for you before we let you go. I, th I think the, the transition in Hong Kong, given that's where you're sitting, is just pretty fascinating from those of us that like are focused on the geography of global finance and where capitals, you know, pools and flows and, and who, who are like, you know, the stewards of those pools of capital. Obviously, Hong Kong has been one of the biggest, most successful financial centers um, on earth. And but there's a lot of regulatory changes going on in Beijing. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty around Hong Kong. I mean, given your work at CFA and the fact that you're living in, in Hong Kong and just welcomed another member of your family in Hong Kong, it sounds like. Um, Give us your take on Hong Kong before you go. Like, it, how's it going? And, and you know, do you have a level of optimism or pessimism, or maybe, maybe you can't completely say, um, <laughs> which is part of the issue. <laughs> no, again, I, I don't flatter myself. But, uh, <laughs> Beijing. They're listening, listening to Sloan, though, so be careful. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, or, or. No, I, 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 I don't think I'm, I'm um, their, their biggest concern. Um, I, I think from a purely financial perspective, I think um, some people are getting uh, what's happening in China wrong in that um, uh, I don't think President Xi is anti-business at all. I don't think he's anti-people getting wealthy. What I think he is... Um, is trying to reshape and repoint the country away from some of the uh, problems, the oligarchical problems, if I can put it that way, and the property market problems that have grown up over the last um, 10 years. And, and I would point to, you know, just to bring it home to Americans, I would say, you know, um, think about Teddy Roosevelt and uh, think about breaking apart the, uh, uh, the iron and steel and oil cartels back in the early 1900s, um, the, you know, the trust-busting uh, actions of, of the first 10 years of, of the last century. And I think that's what Xi is trying to do. Um, I think he, uh, he's focusing on pockets of uh, egregious profit extraction within the industry and trying to do that, but uh, trying to break that apart. The challenge, obviously, in, in, in the system that exists in China is that that uh, looks to us in the West as being um, very autocratic. It probably looked that way to Andrew Carnegie call. in 1904. <laughs> <laughs> you'd, have to, you'd have to ask him. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I think it's a I, I think there's a, a little again, a little bit of historical perspective is is important on that. Uh, as far as Hong Kong is concerned, uh, I, you know, Hong Kong 
um, in my view, is going to struggle to um, hold itself out to be a global financial center going forward. Um, I think it is it has a very bright future as a financial center for China. And bizarrely, this polarization between West and East uh, creates a renewed opportunity for Hong Kong to play that bridge between West and East. But to some extent, to some extent, up, up to three or four years ago, uh, had begun to erode that um, uh, access to Shanghai, access to Beijing was so open for Western companies that they were bypassing Hong Kong. Now, I think as as uh, China uh, uh, and the West pull apart, uh, oddly enough, Hong Kong comes back into focus, and you can see that you can see that in the boom in the stock market, the listings, the uh, uh, redomiciliations of listings away from New York and London to Hong Kong. Uh, those things are actually good for Hong Kong, and I think will provide Hong Kong with a very real purpose over the next decade as. Uh, again, as China's window on the world. So I'm not negative about Hong Kong financially at all. Um, I wish in Hong Kong we had um, a government that was a little more visionary and that helped our young people a little bit more to understand uh, the direction that we're headed in in Hong Kong, uh, to become more comfortable with it, to see the opportunity that's there for them, uh, and most importantly, to break up some of the oligopolies in Hong Kong that have uh, ruled Hong Kong for uh, the post Second World War period, um, where it's time to uh, time to move on from that. And I think uh, that's Beijing's view as well. And I'd like I'd like the Hong Kong government to take a little bit more of an aggressive approach to our homegrown problems. Um, rather than focus necessarily on what Beijing wants us to do. Uh, there's plenty of work close to home that we could do that would help Hong Kong people become much more comfortable with the realities of the world that they now live in. So very positive about Hong Kong. Don't think it's going to be a global center uh, for the next decade. Uh, it will reinvent itself as China's window on the world. And through that, maybe in 10 to 15 years, becomes a truly global financial center again, but with yeah. uh, very heavily uh, Chinese characteristics. So my, my, my thought for Hong Kong. It's still a wonderful place to live. It's still my home. Uh, uh, it's still where all my friends are. And um, I love it. And it's been very kind mm. to me. And I have absolutely no intention <laughs> of abandoning it. Unless... Yeah, on that note, yeah, yeah, we got to kick you out of here. Yeah, well, Paul, <laughs> thank you, thank you so much thank for hopping you. on our our funny little podcast and talking to us about this stuff. That's I think a great perspective on Hong Kong, sustainable finance, and the rest. It's of awesome. It. Great. Thanks, Paul. Uh, chat to you soon. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lovely to see you. Bye. Bye. Wow. What a guy. Genghis Khan vodka. This. <laughs> This Genghis Khan is smooth and won't actually kill you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I, I, you know, I do wonder about that, right? Like, does Genghis Khan vodka, like, does it kill burn? You. Does it burn extra? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's got some consequences. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, you got to deal with the, the the consequences of your actions. I mean, you know, I like I, you know, I, I haven't had a drink in almost three years at this point. So you wow. know, I mean, uh, like you know, the whole stuff is academic at this point. But uh, yeah, interesting. Know. But if I were to have a drink, <laughs> it would be Genghis Khan vodka. Um, Brought to you by. But yeah, exactly. Um, uh, time for our next segment. Building oh. stuff is hard. Building stuff is hard. Let me actually play the sound effect. Well, I can't play the sound effect. I'm so, the technology really. It just it, it's we, a, it's yeah. an it's an embarrassment of riches. Uh, you know, to be this good at technology, this good really at everything. We do. Yeah, um, I did write a book about technology, but that was investing, so yeah. not podcasting. Yeah, <laughs> the building stuff is hard. I have one, um, mm. but let's start with you this week. Did did you have any difficult? Uh, for those that don't know, building stuff is hard. Is a segment in which we reflect on how hard it is to build stuff um, um, from scratch. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing that I'm wrestling with right now is just doing marketing um you know at all um because like i i think you know i'm trying to build this asset manager invest vegan and like I, the to actually go out and like get on people's calendars and it just feels so needy uh <laughs> and like i you know i i think that you know when you're trying to start an asset manager from scratch like it feels yeah. like being a door-to-door -door brush salesman you know totally. um you know where you're like uh, hey, can I talk to you about the wonderful benefits of, you know, investing vegan? Ah, yeah. Um, and, totally. uh, yeah. And I, I just have a heart. I mean, like I have the sense that like, you know, asset managers should spend as little time as possible on marketing because it's a like direct detraction from investment time, mm. um, which is what I get paid to do. Um, right. and so, yeah, I, I think squaring that circle and figuring out, um, you know, like what percentage of my time to commit to it has been my real, I like psychic struggle over the last, you know, little bit here. It, it'll be fun to like watch you go through this over the next couple of years, because obviously like as the, as the purists, um, you know, trying to help the asset owners, we, we want you to spend your time not on marketing, right? Yep. So we're, yeah, always, exactly. we're always crabby when the managers are marketing too much and they've got these big IR teams and it's like, Man, what a waste. Like how much of my fees are going to pay for the marketing budget? Yep. Um, but it's a, you know, we could almost call this segment selling stuff is hard because yep. if, you're build, if you're building something and, and it works, you got to go sell it. And exactly. that's just like a muscle that you got to develop as an, as an entrepreneur. Um, I mean, I've like done more sales calls, mostly for like software, you know, that, that I've built or data um, or selling the equity in a company I'm building. Like, it's like constant. And, yep. and so again, building like that authenticity around what you're selling, that's the cool thing about what you're building Sloan. Like you're living it yep. and you have a passion around it. And like, you're demonstrating that you can make money doing it uh, yep. in terms of investment strategy. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's really, um, it's, it's been great journey so far. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's the funny thing about it is, you know, it's going to last for a very long time. So I'm just kind of committed to the journey. What about you? Mine was, uh, so I had a very important meeting in Los Angeles. Uh, I think it was Friday and all the planes were canceled at 11 PM here on the Sick. West coast. <laughs> and it was really important for something that I'm building, which is, uh, still very confidential, but mm. still very important for me. And so I woke up at five in the morning and drove to Los Angeles, which is a six hour drive. Sick. 
and had a 90 minute lunch and turned around and drove back. Wow. And uh, yeah. So like, in case you think this is glamorous building stuff, <laughs> <laughs> no. put that out of your mind. I literally had dinner at Denny's at oh. a freaking truck stop. Oh, that's yeah. so good. Did you go for the triple slam breakfast? Because I, I think they serve that all, all 24 hours. You know what? I had a waffle egg sandwich. That, no, uh, sorry. It wasn't a waffle. It was French toast sandwich. Ugh. That's terrifying. And it was a little bit of a mistake. <laughs> I'll, I'll own it. And then spent like multiple hours in a car after that. Wow. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, so that yeah. So that was my my like the pain. That was the pain <laughs> cave I was in uh, this week. So. Oy. but you got to do it you got to do it yeah i mean it's like if you know if somebody wanted to meet with me in boston i'd drive to boston um but yeah like such is life um yeah. let's uh let, you know we got yet another segment an actual segment segments of the show that we do <laughs> um let's let, you know so the first question is you know you just published this paper on I did. The, the economic case for transparency in private equity um you want to like talk about it? can you give us a couple high points about that? yeah sure sure i can give you the high level um we think there should be more transparency in private equity is the first thing <laughs> <laughs> that's Why? the title of the paper <laughs> Um, I mean, look, the, the punchline is like private equity is like barely an alternative asset. Like yep. this is mainstream, right? Like huge commitments into the space, more capital flowing to liquid markets than like ever before. Uh, it's mainstream. And so we need to put rules, um, around how the managers report to the allocators just to level the playing field. Like I'm not saying like we need to put rules around how much you can charge fees. I'm saying we need to put rules around how you report the fees you're charging mm. um, so that we can all have like a shared understanding of what's good, what's bad. What am I actually buying? Yeah. Um, the, cl the classic here is like 76% um, of private equity GPs claiming to be top quartile. Um, that's a real stat. And that comes out of the intransitivity of the metrics used um, in private equity, the transitive property is like, if a is bigger than B mm -hmm. and B is bigger than C, um, then a is bigger than C. Right. Yep. Yep. And, and that's like a rule. Well, unfortunately, because of the way we calculate IRRs, um, which is often something that LPs want because that's how they get compensated. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the private equity people can game them on when they recognize cash flows, et cetera. Uh, and so the whole paper is about how we get to that level playing field for the benefit of the LPs. But I admit also the benefit of the industry, the industry needs to go into the defined contribution world of pensions. So these are much shorter horizon assets. That's the future of pensions. Yep. Um, and in order to make that step, the carrot to the, the general partners in private equity here is, look, if you make these steps toward transparency, you're going to unlock all this defined contribution capital. They can't do it today because you can't give them a daily nav. Mm. Um, and so I think uh, we're going to see some new rules coming out of the SEC around um, private equity and the fees. And the paper is about, in particular, the types of data LPs need to ask GPs for. So. Mm. Um, it's fairly approachable and we are going to 
publish um, like a f- in terms of reading, the paper is fairly approachable. It's not horrifically dense. Um, <laughs> and then, which I do, I do write a lot of stuff that's horrific. But let, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> People don't really know that you moonlight as a horror author, but you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Stephen King of finance. Uh, All right, what's next? Um, so this is a, you know, I think a, an equally serious question. Um, people like to argue that blank is a sandwich, uh, like a hot dog is a sandwich, <laughs> a taco is a sandwich, uh, so on and so forth. What, what is, uh, your worst opinion along those lines? Hmm. Mm, I got one, but before I do it, do you think the people of Bologna, Italy are <laughs> angry that we took a bunch of pieces of pigs and converted them into baloney <laughs> i think the pigs are probably the angriest about it but <laughs> but yeah i mean yeah, you know like, uh, they like, must be they're like what the frick you took yeah. the worst in quote sausage on earth and you named it after us anyways um i think uh i think uh my take on a sandwich is a, a meatloaf sandwich so mm. that i think that's a real thing mm-hmm. and so does my wife and my kids um uh, I, I think that is a delicious sandwich, frankly, but you know, it's not for everybody, but that's my worst take. I guess I think <laughs> I'm pretty standard, mm. standard, standard sandwich fare, not a Sa- shit sandwich guy, uh, yeah, which, no, which yeah, yeah. you know, that's weird. That's, you know, I, I, I don't see that for you. <laughs> no, but the, the shit sandwich is the classics, uh, criticism methodology for managers to employees. Oh yeah. Start with the bread. Yep. Which is the compliment. And then you give the critique and then you end with a compliment again. It's a framework. Yeah. Like, like a listener might leave a comment on our, uh, you know, on our Apple, you know, podcast thing. Like, I think these, 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 these people are great at podcasting. Their technology, uh, yes, could, is, you know, could, is, could use some, uh, some updates, but I really enjoy listening. That would be a shame. Yeah. So much. Uh, I love the title of the show. The content isn't very good, <laughs> uh, and, but slowed at Ashby look like nice people. That's yes. a shit sandwich. <laughs> That's a shit sandwich. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, love, love, love to imagine our listener feedback. Um, last question. I mean, this is like very salient oh, now. Who, here's hoping it's salient when the podcast gets released uh, in a couple of days. There's been a lot of discussion recently about how best to pay for and incentivize a climate transition. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, by a lot of discussion, I mean, every day when I turn on the PBS NewsHour, it's been like one proposal yes. for taxing people or another. Um, what's your preferred approach between like, I mean, independent of the political realities um, between carbon taxes, taxing unrealized capital gains, tax credits for solar, et cetera? Yeah. I, I mean, like the, the stuff that I've gone after just because like we we have like one half of the political world in our country that is antagonistic to this issue yeah. of climate. Right. So, yep. so like my approach to this has been like, can we just not like, can we focus on solutions that don't involve the government? That's what <laughs> I'm going to focus on. Yep. Um, because if you have, for example, a Trump presidency, like you're going to leave the Paris uh, accords, you're going to do all. And so the way I view the government in all this is like, that's the bonus. Like if, if you have the right government mm. in place and they can do the policies that really drive these changes, like, the, the types of policies that Tesla used and, and many other companies used to like get to scale. Yep. Um, you know, that's exciting. Um, but for me, I want to price the climate risk and financial markets. And so part of this is like, 
doing a judo move on the fiduciary duties that are kind of um, bound into many of these pension funds and say, look, if we can then go and use technology to put a price yep. on climate risk, physical or transition, then we can um, unlock trillions of dollars for climate solutions. That's been my main focus. I do also believe that um, given that we've managed to create like $10 billion markets around dog and kitty related cryptocurrencies, <laughs> um, we should be able to do something even bigger. I know that's audacious um, with carbon markets. Mm. And uh, I mean, like, it's sad to say this, but like the voluntary carbon offset market is only 7 billion, right? In 2021. Wow. Like, wow. it should be 700 billion or even 7 trillion. I don't know what the fuck it should be. Yeah, it's a big it, it, number. It should, it should be big. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, should be like... like you, you know. shouldn't be like, oh, look at the ranking of these markets. So there's Dogecoin uh, and there's uh, Carbon. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? Yeah. Um, but that, you know, that's the reality today. So, so, and I think this would even be a stable coin because it like is rooted to a real world thing. Yeah. And so why, why not like take that, that focus on, you know, distributed um, coins and things like that and bring it into that carbon market. So but I think you're sensing like I'm focusing on the private sector stuff with the hopes that the public sector will happen. But we just we just all got so burned in 2016 when yeah. the, all the priorities changed that it was like a reminder that you you have to keep working on private solutions. I, yeah, well, and, and you have to anyway, like almost no matter what the government does, you know, like you got to focus on like who's manufacturing the stuff, you know, and how do you get them the resources that they need to manufacture more of it? Yeah. Uh, and deploy more of it. I mean, like there's, you know, companies out here that are like actually, you know, hiring the people who put the solar panels on the roofs, you know, and like, are they resourced enough to pay people like to, you know, top, you know, quartile wages in their places in, in their places yeah. of work and get the best people? I don't know. By the um, way, as like a as a final shot, like I know we were kind of joking about Megan and Harry uh, <laughs> joining the imp as impact partners at Ethic, but like that, like think about what happened. We had an article in the Daily Mail, yep, go out to all these people that probably like barely understand impact, right? Yep, and they're like now being sensitized to it, and so like this is the mainstreaming of these issues, which is really important you know, for like sensitizing voters to these issues, but also like unlocking more capital, more stakeholders showing up at board meetings, you know, like my, my guess is when you have like people of this, you know, fame coming out mm -hmm. and talking about these issues, like at the very least it becomes mainstream. Yep. And, and I think like we need a lot more mainstreaming of these topics so that we can start moving the capital faster um, so I'm not like a hater on that one. I know where this is the related party uh, show. So, so like we, we love ethic, but, oh yeah, um, I think we do need more stuff like that too. Like just sensitizing this, the, the general public to these issues and not allowing, um, you know, certain random, um, media sites to like control the narrative, break through that. Yeah, exactly. Well, because, you know, what happens, like the uneducated, you know, kind of journalist take that has been, you know, kind of proliferating recently um, has been like, ah, yeah, you know, the, the sustainability uh, push is behind all these high gas prices. 
you know, which is like, I mean, first of all, the high gas prices drive the sustainability push, not the other way around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and like there's a million reasons why that take is, is BS, but you're, you're totally right. Like with each incremental, uh, you know, push towards uh, solar and the legitimation of it, um, you know, people who would never, you know, necessarily care about Jay Littman, um, but feel like they, they care. Play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they care about the British hippie banker and his mom and his dog. Um, I know that that part. I feel bad for Jay, but <laughs> but like we need more people understanding that like these strategies make money and yeah. the, the like you can go out and build big businesses around them and all this kind of stuff. So look, I I hope we get some real movement um, next week and at COP. I think it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of there. Or is it this week? I think it's next week. Uh, yeah, I think this I mean, week when the podcast comes out. Yeah, exactly. Um, hopefully, you know, here's hoping what well, we can, yeah. I mean, like, I look forward to being surprised. Um, anyway, what, what do you got going on in the garden this week? Uh, so I don't know if you saw this, we don't have a sound effect, do we? Uh, mm, we what would a garden sound like? I wonder. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I've got this crickets. Is this is tragic. We, mm. We've got tragedy in the Monk uh, Garden. No. We had an atmospheric river bomb cyclone attack. I don't know what the, all the words are, uh, but there's a very big storm that hit here over the weekend. We had eight inches of rain. Jesus. Three trees blew over. Three of my wow. trees. Yes. It was devastating. And one of them actually broke in half. So that's dead. Mm. But the garden tip called my mom up. Tears, you know, not really, but. <laughs> it's dramatic uh and she's like oh you can push those trees back up you just dig around them you push the trees back up you put some more dirt in there you you anchor it again it'll totally keep growing and i was like what huh. and so i was googling around and it's true if your trees blow over now these huh. are like one tree was like eight feet and one tree was like 15 feet okay so they're, um, not, they're not goliaths they're not yeah my sequoia is still not fully grown <laughs> Um, I did plant a sequoia, by the way. Oh, that's anyway, awesome. so the trees fell over. I got them back up. I got them staked. And look, I don't know if they're going to survive, but like the, the word on the street is if your trees get blown over in a storm, you can actually get them back up and living and regrow the roots that got pulled out on the one side. Hmm. Um, because in theory, the other roots are still going into the into the ground. It's just yeah. the one side that's kind of been up. and So, yeah, I'll wow. let you know. Damn nature, you crazy! Uh, you crazy nature. Th that's incredible. Uh, Back from the dead. Yeah, that's inspiring. I mean, like, I, I think you know. Well, here's hoping we're all we're all the the free money nation is with those trees tonight. <laughs> yeah. Well, when free money is when you don't have to spend more money. On that's new true. Trees, that's you know? true. So this is still free money type tips. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, uh, yeah. I guess like my tip is uh, get your garlic in the ground. Get your bulbs in the ground. Um, is this the time? This is the time. Um, yeah, I got. You know, we uh, our our deck is you know currently still taken apart because we uh, we just got solar installed. But um, the garlic is going in the ground very very soon, and as are all the you know the tulips and all the other wonderful little guys for spring. Awesome. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, bulb time. Yeah, as a forward-thinking garden investor, um, you know, it's time to think forward six six months or so to spring. Bulbs in the ground. You heard it yep. here. You heard Probably it here not first. first. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely first. Yeah. We uh, knew that first. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's all we have for you this week. And bye. Bye.